You'll find that in the Gospel of St. Mark chapter 6 as we continue the exposition of straight talk about Jesus Christ. This morning we are pursuing um, this chapter in sections because it's so long, but we'll read verses 30 through 36. The Gospel of St. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 30, let us hear and attend to the Word of God. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Both the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him, and ran there on foot from all the cities. They arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them, because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. We'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. What is one of the essential human needs for life that can be the most basic or common, yet also the most refined and special? Well, the answer is food. Yes, by food we sustain life, and by food we celebrate life. Think for, about it just for a minute as how much of our life revolves around food. I mean, we could probably spend the rest of the, the time this morning just talking about that in aspects of our life and how much of it revolves around food and meals. And that's not a bad thing. It, I think we'd be surprised if we were to start calculating how much of our, of our life is connected with food. So food is important, but also food is an obvious theme throughout the Bible used by God to reveal our need for spiritual life. If we need food to live for our physical body, how much more do we need spiritual food for our soul? That's a main theme that the Bible presents to us. Can you remember some Bible stories where food is used to reveal theological truths? I guess the first one that would come to mind would be the Lord's Supper. How profound the Lord's Supper is. But then also remember, for example, the eating of the forbidden fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Revealing original sin, there is a huge theological truth that is connected to the eating of food. Food is symbolic of, of a greater reality there. Or think of the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb revealing the consummation of salvation. So take that theme, that idea of how God uses food and by it, he reveals to us theological truths. Uh, sometimes people say that they're looking for some way to study the Bible. They think they know pretty much the basics. They know everything, you know, in the Bible. Well, here's a, a challenge for you. Take the books of the Bible and the stories of the Bible and go through them and start thinking in reference to how God uses food and applies that to give us theological truths. It's throughout the Bible. And it's for a purpose. Um, from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. And also consciously informing all people everywhere of the need greater than food for the body. The Bible sanctifies an irrepressible analogy. 
of human dependence upon the Creator as Savior. Food is necessary for the body, and the body's natural use of food witnesses to immortality because God defines existence. I hope you can see the connection there. Uh, We need food to live. And God has so created and designed us so that we actually do live from food we eat. It's a marvelous thing, isn't it? This connection that we have with food and what God has so ordered and how it is that we are marvelously created so that the intake of food actually sustains our life. But all of that is secondary to the greater reality that we need God's life for our soul. The God who gives us life in our body is the God who gives us life for our soul. And so the fact that we are dependent upon something like eating food is an irrepressible witness of our immortality. Think about it in ancient cultures. In ancient cultures from tribal peoples to empires. What is a common thing that archaeologists find? That people are buried with what? They're buried with food. Now, I don't think that uh, all of the ancients were superstitious to believe that that food was going to be used in the afterlife. I think it was also symbolic. Don't we do symbolic things in burial? We do. And so I do think that there were the ancients who recognized there is life after death and there is the need for the sustaining of life after death. We cannot sustain our own life. We're dependent on what God has created and the way he's created us. And so we need food. Sometimes we just need the basic food. And sometimes we celebrate life with the enjoyment of food. So this is a a very substantial theme in the Bible. Mark's record of Jesus' miracle feeding of the multitude of 5,000 plus is a faith story about God's way of salvation. I need to say that very plainly and very directly. Not necessarily for you, but but just in uh, testimony before the Lord. This is what Jesus feeding the multitude is about. Yes, he had compassion on them. Jesus is a humanitarian. He cares about people's needs. He cares about their sickness. He cares about their hurts. He cares about their uh, emotional distress, their worries. He cares about their having food and their having some comfort. He cares about all these things, but he cares about all these things secondary to caring about their soul. And so Jesus' miraculous feeding of the multitude, you need to understand, first and foremost, is a faith story about God's way of salvation. So we continue on here in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark. The gospel conflict in this sinful world is against unbelief, disbelief, false beliefs, and weak belief. But saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is the victory that overcomes the world. And we're dealing in this section here about weak beliefs. Uh, I pointed that out to you last week. We'll continue to go through it uh, as we come to the conclusion in the next couple of weeks. But in verses 30 through 52, weak belief comes from not keeping Christ-centered scripture testimonies and teachings. Now, we'll see as we get to it that there is a connection between Jesus feeding the multitude and the disciples' weak faith out on the sea when Jesus walks to them because they didn't understand about his feeding the multitude. That's what we're told. And so we're going to get to that. But before we do, we look at verses 30 through 32 this morning. We're going to go down through verse 36. But in verses 30 through 32, listen as I read. 
Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. So the apostles return and report to Jesus about their gospel mission. But they need a retreat from the never-ending needs of the people. And they too, the, the apostles, they need food. They need food for body and for soul. And so Jesus, recognizing and, and having compassion and care for them after they had returned, says, let's take a retreat. Now I want us to understand from this that while the Christian gospel ministry has a formal order under the authority of Christ, Christ commissioned and sent them out, remember, in pairs. And we talked about that uh, earlier on back in chapter, uh, as we dealt with that, with his sending them out. But it must be remembered that the supernatural power of the gospel is not limited not limited to, nor is it conveyed by the external means only. That's a lesson I think is valuable for us because we oftentimes look to the formal and uh, the commissioning of Christ and we, we want to follow through and commit to that. But it's not just in the formal acts of ministry. And it's not, not simply in the external means. But it is that the Lord is with us day in and day out. And we need to recognize that the ministry doesn't depend upon me. Christ's church is not founded on me or you or our doing. We do many good things. We do uh, considerate things. We do things that are sanctified by the Holy Spirit and blessed. But it must be through God's means and not just always in terms of our formal checking the box off and say, well, we did that, Lord. We did that. So I want to warn you against that kind of a mindset. It's easy to fall into. The disciples returned. They were excited. They were amazed at what they had done and what they had taught and the people's response to it. Some responded favorably. Some didn't. God provided for them through the whole thing. They come back to Jesus and they're telling them about it. And he says, we need a break. But even there where they were, presumably in the house in Capernaum, they were unable to get a break. They couldn't even eat. They didn't even have peace and time to eat. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt like you never get a break? And so we, we do need, I think, to take this to heart. And we need to look beyond just the external things that we're doing and not lose sight of our dependence and our prayer and our necess necess the necessity of the Holy Spirit's promised sanctifying work and presence. Look at verses uh, 33 through 36 as we look here Jesus recognizes and validates the need for retreat from public ministry for a time of relaxation, for reflection, and for restoring body, mind, and spirit. That's what he says to the disciples. We need to come apart. You need to relax. You need to reflect upon what's happened. And you need to be restored so that you can even eat your, uh, some, some uh, meals in peace. But even this is subject to the providence of God fulfilling the great commandment. Love God first and your neighbor is yourself. So as Jesus says, let's go to a deserted place. Let's go away from the multitudes. The multitudes spy them out. They recognize and see, and somehow they have an idea of where they're going, and they even get there ahead of them, and a great and vast multitude is there. The disciples, I'm sure, the apostles were thinking, we're going to get a break. Has, has it ever happened to you? It's happened to me where you plan, you're looking forward to, say, a vacation or a retreat, and, and, and you get things packed. You're already in your mind. You're already going there. And what happens? You get a phone call. 
that there is a pressing need. Something needs to be attended to now. And in God's providence, we must accept these things that loving our neighbors ourselves and obeying God even comes sometimes before activities and, and things that we've planned. It, sometimes it's a hard lesson to learn and how to balance that. But here's what happened with uh, Jesus and his apostles. Jesus put others first, even in his care for the apostles and saying, you need a break. You need a, you need a time apart. Now, while the Christian ministry has biblically identified qualifications, they have been developed into academic, educational, and professional degree programs. And I, I agree with that. I think ministers should be trained. I believe there's a great value. I believe it's sanctioned by Scripture. Now, I may have some of my own peculiar ideas about what is best in that training and what I think you know, should be focused on. Um, but I'm fortunately not the only one, and I didn't dream these things up on my own. There's a, there's a wonderful uh, connection and heritage that we have, particularly in the Reformed and Presbyterian history, of uh, recognizing the need for education and training ministers, but not necessarily the kind of degree programs that have become, I think, a, a business oftentimes uh, these days. But it must be remembered that the source of the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ revealed to be the Good Shepherd and Savior. You see, that's one of my, my complaints and my concerns. With all the value that we have in terms of an educated, uh, uh, educated ministers and the education programs that we have, we must always maintain and focus that these things are not an end in themselves, that, that these various skills and these various programs, while they can be useful and helpful, they cannot take the place of the focus that we have and of the testimony that we maintain of the gospel source being in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the good shepherd. We can never preach that enough. We must never stop preaching that. We must never stop calling that to witness. Look at verses 33 and 34. But the multitude saw them departing, and many knew him and ran there on foot from all the cities and arrived before them and came together to him. And Jesus, when he came out, saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep not having a shepherd. So he began to teach them many things. Now you might remember uh, back in uh, the earlier part of this chapter, verses 14 and 15, even Herod knew his name. His name had been publicized. People here recognized and knew Jesus. They knew who he was. It seems that they might have even recognized the boat that has appeared many times in the Gospel of Mark. And now they recognize Jesus and the apostles getting into the boat. And they're heading across somewhere. And so Jesus is known and recognized. He's becoming well known and associated with the Old Testament origin of his name. As I mentioned to you last week, Jesus is uh, from the Old Testament Hebrew Joshua or Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. And it's interesting that Jesus quotes here, or at least the Gospel of Mark quotes this in Jesus' heart from Numbers chapter 27, what Moses prayed in regard to God sending someone to take over from him, and guess who God appointed to take over from Moses? Yeshua, Old Testament Jesus. And so... This is what we read in Numbers 27, verses 15 through 18. Then Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, 
that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. What did Jesus look upon the multitude and, and be moved with? They were like sheep not having a shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Yeshua, take Joshua, take Old Testament Jesus, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Jesus was becoming well known. His name was well known. He was recognized. Don't miss the connection. His name's origin is from the Old Testament. And I know there were maybe plenty of people named Jesus. Maybe there are many named Christopher today. Or or Jesus. But this one named Jesus was becoming well known and recognized by name. And what he was doing and saying was identifying him as the promised one greater than Moses and greater than uh, Joshua of the Old Testament. Now this is an obvious example of keeping Christ-centered testimonies and teachings, comparing and interpreting Scripture with Scripture. That's what I'm saying about building our faith, how we don't have a weak faith but a strong faith. And as a part of that, we connect the dots. We make the connections in terms of what Scripture teaches us, keeping Christ-centered testimonies and Christ-centered Scriptures always before us. So as I'm preaching you to, to you this morning about Jesus becoming well-known and His name being uh, known, not only associated with uh, what He was doing, but with what He was preaching. And because we're told here, what did He do for this multitude first? That can get lost in these few verses. What does it say that Jesus did first? He taught them many things. Over and over, Mark has emphasized Jesus' preaching ministry. I know it's amazing that Jesus feeds them here and He's moved with compassion. We're going to find out more about that. But you need to understand that Jesus is validating for us what we've already said this morning, that this need for physical food represents a greater need in reality, spiritual food that we must have to live. And so that's where Jesus is headed with this. And the point is that being recognized by the multitude and having compassion for them and fulfilling that promised uh, Yahweh is salvation, Jesus is preaching and revealing to them, you need more than physical food. You need spiritual food from God to live. And as I said, this is an obvious example of what we're talking about, of uh, keeping Christ-centered Scripture testimonies and teachings. Now, the shepherd motif, I'm sure you're well aware, is used throughout the Bible. It's used by God to reveal His saving grace. It culminates in Jesus, the good shepherd, who came to save His sheep and to give shepherd pastors to feed His sheep. We've seen that motif. We've made reference to it. Last week, we used Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Who is our Lord? Jesus is our Lord. He is the good shepherd of the sheep. Uh, In Ezekiel, the Lord promised and said that He would send shepherds after His own heart. Not false shepherds, but true shepherds. Jesus told Peter and through him the apostles and to the church at large, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of them. They need to be fed, they need to be tended. In Hebrews chapter 13 we're told that Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep who has come through the resurrection to guide his sheep to the promised pasture and to the life eternal. Uh, In in Ephesians 4, we're told that Jesus has ascended on high and He has given gifts to His church. And among those gifts to His church are pastor, teachers, 
The term translated pastor is the word shepherd. Shepherd teachers. And in 1 Peter, Peter identifies Jesus as the chief shepherd and those who serve Him well are under shepherds. They're not lords. They're not domineering. They're not little uh, uh, dictators in His church. They are to be under shepherds to the chief shepherd. So the shepherd motif is rich throughout Scripture, and I know you're familiar with it. But faithful gospel shepherds must feed Jesus' sheep. Now think about that for a moment. Faithful gospel shepherds must feed Jesus' sheep with the spiritual food Jesus provides. They're His sheep. He tells us what they need to eat. He tells us what we need to be serving them and where we need to be leading them. The priority is faith food over felt needs. Man, I wish I could shout that and it would reverberate far and wide. Jesus tells us to feed his sheep with the food he provides that is faith food over felt needs. And that's rich in this passage. Yes, Jesus taught them many things before he gave himself to caring about their felt needs. Because what comes first? What's the greater priority? Now, look at verse, the second part of verse 34. So he began to teach them many things. Just so I can punctuate that of what I've been saying this morning. Jesus provided for the multitude in a deserted place, first with prophetic preaching, greater than the manna and the prophetic word, which includes the Old Testament law, that God gave the Israelites through Moses. That's an astounding thing, isn't it? Did you just hear what I said? That Jesus teaching the people here many things and providing them with a prophetic word is greater than what Moses did in God giving manna and quail in the wilderness and even giving the law of God. What Jesus, as the greater Moses and the greater Joshua, is doing in preaching the gospel in the new covenant is greater Once again, only the Holy Spirit can convince you of that. But I can tell you, Jesus makes it obvious that the faith food he gives is himself personally as the source of salvation life. And so faith food must be eaten how? Faith food must be eaten by faith. (laughs) This was the point in in John chapter 6. If you want the divine commentary the infallible commentary on Jesus feeding the multitude, then you need to read John chapter 6. I'm going to challenge you to go home this afternoon and spend some time in this context reading John chapter 6. There are some disturbing things that Jesus says there that still kind of throw us off sometimes. Jesus says, my my, uh, body is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. You must eat my flesh, you must drink my blood. And we get a little, I don't know, uh, a little bewildered about that. I mean, it's such emphatic language. But you need to read the whole thing. Because the people started saying, how can this man give us his uh, flesh to eat? How can he give us his blood to drink? This is a hard saying. We don't like what we're hearing. Because we liked having our belly full. Because they ate the bread and the fish till they were full and there was leftovers. We'll have more to say about that in the weeks to come. But the point is right now, They didn't listen to what Jesus was saying. Jesus said, I know why you, the next day, I know why you want to make me king. 
because you ate and your bellies were full. Can you imagine if we have a king, we can never suffer in, in the sense of being under siege because he can always provide us food. We can never suffer from having our armies decimated because he raises the dead. We can never lose. They were thinking in worldly terms. Beloved, they were so close to faith. Because don't you understand we have a great captain of salvation? We have a great king of the kingdom of God so that we can never lose? We can never lose our souls. We will never grow hungry in our soul. We thirst and hunger for righteousness sake, and we are filled to overflowing. Joy overflowing and full of joy because we can never lose. And we will never die. We go into this world fitted with the armor of salvation and the, the call of faith and we will suffer and we will hurt. And our mortal flesh will die, but we will never lose. Because our great captain of salvation has fed us with spiritual food. And we have eaten by faith. That's not hard to understand. It's not hard to understand. This is what Jesus said in John 6, verses 27 through 22 through 70. I, I want you to go and read and, and spend some time thinking about Jesus' commentary. Jesus giving us the meaning of His feeding of this multitude. Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are peanut butter and jelly. The words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. How do you eat Jesus' food? How do you eat His body and His blood? What it represents in terms of His life. How do you feed on the life of Jesus, the eternal life of Jesus? You must take it by faith. You must eat it. You must receive it by faith. It's not hard to understand. It's impossible to do without the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. But it's not hard to understand. You go home this afternoon and we're going to have one of those rituals, aren't we? After church, we're going to go eat. I love Sunday dinner. I have the most wonderful memories uh, throughout my life of Sunday dinners. Uh, I've told you before, one of my minister buddies, what he called fried chicken, the glory bird. I just get a kick out of that because I love the glory bird. <laughs> fried chicken on Sunday dinner. On Sunday for dinner. Now, how do we enjoy our Sunday dinner? We eat it. Not hard to figure out, is it? The plates are passed around. I mean, we're sitting there at the dinner, or we're ordering, or whatever we do. The food comes. We know what we do. We eat the food. We don't have to be retaught that every time we eat, do we? Can you imagine if you had to relearn how to eat every meal? That would be exhausting. But instead of having to relearn how to eat, we spend more time enjoying the meal. Jesus says, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And you receive, you take this in, you live by faith. You eat the food that Jesus provides the way that Jesus gives it, by faith. And so that's what Jesus was teaching the people and that's what he emphasized in feeding the people. And once again, I want to say to you to spend time in John chapter 6 this afternoon because Jesus gives us the infallible commentary on the purpose and the meaning of his feeding the multitude. 
So like Jesus, miraculously feeding the multitude was not an end in itself. The external means and activities of the gospel ministry are not an end in themselves. It's not that we just come here and go through the the motions of worship. It's not the external means that we receive the the bread and the cup and the Lord's Supper uh, with the words of institution. We must receive them in faith. You see, you must follow along in prayer, in faith. You must sing the, the words from your mouth, must come from a heart of belief. The call to worship must register in your mind that God is with us. How is all of this so? By faith, because God has promised it and revealed it. You don't have to relearn how to eat every meal. You have to relearn how to worship every time we come together. No, we enter in by faith. So, the physical, mental, and emotional benefits that come to people from the church the visible and the local church, the physical, the mental, and the emotional benefits that come to people are only lasting as supernatural gospel benefits when confessed by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to be from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So that's one of those things that I was saying about not getting off track. And you become so busy and so overburdened with trying to take care of people's felt needs. felt needs. This is how we build the church. This is how we do the church. No, it's not. There are benefits. There are physical, there are mental and emotional benefits that come from the worship of God and from the body of Christ, but they are secondary. I would even say they are fruit that come from the regenerating seed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only lasting benefit that comes through faith by the grace of God and confessing that Jesus is our source of life. I have that on good authority. You know why? Because when, when the people left, again, you can read this in John chapter 6, when, when the people left, turned away, and didn't follow Jesus anymore, I said, this, what he says is hard. We don't want to hear that anymore. Jesus turned to his apostles, the ones who had just returned from their gospel mission, remember? And he says, are you too going to go away? Are you also going to go away? Are you going to leave me? Peter spoke for the apostles, and he speaks for all true believers in the church, far and near. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter understood what Jesus said. You must feed on me by faith. To whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And Lord, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of God. That's feeding on Christ. You see, that's the eternal benefit of Christ-centered Scripture testimonies and teachings. Do you say that this morning? If I say to you, look, I don't know what's happening in the world. Tell us the world's going to end this week. Who knows? What What did Luther say? Go plant a tree. But I'm asking you, Do you feed on Jesus? Is He your life-giving food? Do you know the eternal benefits of the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you are alive in Him? Well, we see the last couple of verses here, verses 35 and 36, 
the apostles were not unfeeling over the needs of the multitude, but they were conflicted from their own felt needs and human limitations. I feel for the apostles here. I I understand. I'm not going to throw rocks at them. Jesus said, "Let's, let's take a break. I'm sure they were excited and looking forward to that. I, mean, I kind of think it would be like Jesus saying, let's go fly fishing in the mountains. Oh, let's go! And then you get there, and there's thousands of people. And Jesus says, we need to take care of them first. But I wanted to just do a little fly fishing and drink coffee around the campfire and talk theology. No, let's take care of the needs of the people. But we can't. We don't have enough to take care of them. We just need to take care of ourselves. Look at verses 35 and 36. When the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. So the the apostles were not unfeeling. It wasn't calloused and uh, disregard. They weren't huffing and saying, enough of this, I'm tired of this, just send them off. No, they said, look, it's late, and before it gets too late, they need to get where they can get some, you know, before Wendy's closes up, before McDonald's shuts down. They need to get, they they probably don't have a Waffle House. So they need to get where they're going to go so they can have somewhere to stay and some food to eat. Uh, And and we need to, too. You know, we haven't really had that break that you promised us. So they were conflicted with their own felt needs and with their human limitations. This is a big challenge in terms of the gospel ministry. One of the greatest challenges to faithfully ministering the gospel is dealing with human inadequacies and personal insufficiency faced with a Christian theology of eternal destiny. I'm speaking here (laughs) right out of my heart. I'm telling you here, it's crushing. Who can bear it? That's why Jesus said, cast your burden, cast your care upon me. I care for your soul. Love, you can't do it on your own. I can't do it. There are human inadequacies. There's no way that you can take care of all the needs of all the people. There's personal insufficiency. Insufficiency in all manner. Not only just in terms of, of time and, and space, not being able to be in every place at one time, but the, the insufficiency of skills and abilities. We sometimes think, I I wish I was smarter, I wish I was this, or I wish I was that. But that's not what Jesus says. And that's not what will save His church. That's the eternal destiny that weighs heavy upon every faithful minister of the gospel. Who can save these people? Who can save their souls? Generation after generation. Well, I... I believe Paul gives us that answer of encouragement when he says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Now, you need to hold on to that because he's fixing to say something else here in a minute. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. What is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about his um, individual abilities and his sufficiency as a minister of Christ and all that he's accomplished. and all, He's saying no. It doesn't depend upon how smart or uh, how uh, clever or how winsome or how polished I am. 
Paul says, no, it doesn't depend on any of that. But rather, Christ leads us in triumph. We're following Christ. We're following Him in His triumph. And He diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. But listen to this. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. This is the weight of eternal destiny. And God did not ask my opinion who He will save and whom He will not save. He didn't ask my opinion. But He encouraged me to pray and to witness and to have hope and to be assured of the triumph in Christ that the gospel will infallibly come to the praise of the glory of God in that salvation that Jesus is the surety of. It will never fail. The gospel will never fail. The church is not a widow. Jesus is not dead. And so we are to follow Christ in triumph. And we're to trust that the fragrant uh, diffusing of the gospel will accomplish that to which God has appointed it in saving and is a witness against. To the one we are an aroma of death leading to death and to the other the aroma of life leading to life and who is sufficient for these things. Paul says no human is sufficient for these things. Therefore, don't miss this last part. We are not, as so many, peddling the Word of God. What does Paul mean by this peddling the Word of God? He says, we proclaim the gospel, we preach the gospel, we don't peddle the gospel. In other words, we don't wheeler-dealer, we don't bargain, we don't try to trade it. Have you seen scenes of the uh, stock exchange with all the traders down on the stock exchange floor yelling and screaming and throwing tickets and dickering back and forth and trying to buy and sell? Well, that's kind of the image that Paul is putting up there in terms of peddling the Word of God, that we're out there trying to outdo one another. That we're out there saying, oh, I've got a better way. I've got a a, a novel approach. I've got a new program. I, I, I am smarter than you are. I have a polished ability. I mean, I could be an actor in Hollywood. Paul says that's all rubbish. That's peddling the Word of God. And we're not peddling the Word of God. We're preaching and proclaiming it as of sincerity. But as from God, we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Beloved, that's the only way I can bear this eternal burden of destiny. Everyone here is going to live somewhere forever. Everyone I've ever come in contact with is going to live somewhere forever. I'm going to live somewhere forever. You're going to live somewhere forever. Everyone we know and everyone who's ever been born is going to live somewhere forever. Who's adequate for that? Who's sufficient for that? The only answer is from sincerity in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's how we speak in the sight of God. And my desire is to be found faithful, not to be found fancy, not to be found powerful, not to be found celebrated, to be found faithful. And keeping Christ-centered scripture, teachings, testimonies before you because the gospel is the victory that overcomes the world forever. Amen. We'll continue on with more from the Gospel of Mark chapter 6, I do strongly encourage you 
to go and read and think through and meditate in John chapter 6 in reference to Jesus feeding the multitude. Our hymn of parting this morning is hymn number 100.